Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Art Lazarus. I'm the medical director at MD Group. And welcome to another version of MD Talk. I am really delighted today to have a friend and colleague with me who I will introduce in just a moment. But first, let me back up and, and tell you what we have planned today. Uh, as a psychiatrist in practice and as a research psychiatrist, we have three topics that I'd like to discuss that are very near and dear to me. Number one, we hope to discuss mental health stigma and all its ramifications. Number two, we'd like to talk about diversity and inclusion in clinical trials and how important it is uh, more than ever probably to try and match the uh, patients under study with uh, the demographics of the uh, individuals who actually have the disease or the disorder. And then third, uh, we'd like to talk about um, a related topic, which is the spending or a lack of spending on mental health uh, research as well as substance use disorders research. And I can think of no one better to discuss all three of those topics than my friend and colleague, as I mentioned, her name is Dr. Mary Morrison. Uh, Dr. Morrison is a full professor of psychiatry at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's also the vice uh, chairman of the research department there. Uh, Mary and I uh, go back at least 15 years um, where we both worked together at AstraZeneca. And uh, I have lost track of Mary's research um, uh, over that time. So I'm really delighted she could join us and bring us up to date. Uh, I also should mention that Mary is on the neuropsychopharmacology uh, um, uh, task force of the NIMH. And I'm very anxious to hear her latest research, which is related to uh, cocaine use disorders. And Mary, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, good to be here, Art. Thank you. And thank you for uh, that nice introduction. Well, when I was early in my training. Um, I trained as an internist before I trained as a psychiatrist. And the population that I was sure I was not going to work with was the population with substance use disorders. So here I am working with the population with substance use disorders. But I started out in academia and uh, did some work on women's mental health and then I met you when I was in the pharmaceutical industry working on uh, new psychiatric drugs all over the world. And then I came back to academia um, at Temple to be the vice chair of research and initially started um, with depression trials because that was my interest um, before. And I had a lot of experience, but um, Temple is located in North Philadelphia and as you may remember, Art, um, Philadelphia is the poorest big city in um, the nation, and North Philadelphia is the poorest part of Philadelphia. So we are, are an entry point for all sorts of drugs into the East Coast. And as such, um, we've had an epidemic um, of substance abuse ever since I've been there, but particularly over the last um, several years. 
how did I end up doing my present study? Um, so I was thinking about this before I was going to talk to you and um, with my interest in women's mental health, I was always looking for a treatment for pregnant women um, with uh, substance use disorders. And particularly cocaine is a particular problem in pregnancy because people can lose their fetuses um, and have miscarriages. And one of my colleagues um, in pharmacology, Dr. Scott Rawls was doing this, these very elegant animal studies with rodents um, and showed that this drug I'm studying, clavulinic acid, which is a beta-lactam related to penicillins, uh, decreased cocaine intake in addicted rodents. I thought, well, gee, you know, that's elegant data. Um, maybe we could do it in humans and maybe someday it could be a treatment. So there are a lot of complications to studying a drug that's related to penicillins um, because not every um, manufacturing facility will work with them. But eventually I got funded with um, Dr. Kyle Campman at Penn um, as part of his center to do the initial studies. And the initial study with a cocaine drug, you have to study the safety of your drug in combination with cocaine to prove to the FDA that it is, um, it doesn't uh, increase the adverse effects of cocaine. And so that was an unusual thing to actually give cocaine users who after informed consent came into the hospital and received cocaine in combination with um, clavulinic acid or placebo. And so we proved to the FDA that that was um, a safe combination. And then for the past couple of years, we've been working with some wonderful consultants at the University of Pennsylvania and at Beth Israel at Harvard. And we've been imaging people um, who had recently used cocaine before and after different doses of clavulinic acid to look at their responses to cocaine cues um, on fMRI, that's functional magnetic imaging, and also looking in the anterior cingulate, which is sort of a part of the limbic system, looking at brain glutamate levels. So I just summarized my career and brought you up to date. So Mary, you, you've really uh, touched upon all three major issues that I mentioned at the outset, uh, mental health stigma, diversity and inclusion, and um, the underfunding of uh, mental health and substance use disorders research. And the fact that, as we both know, Temple is located in a very impoverished area um, in Philadelphia. What's been your experience in recruiting uh, minority patients into clinical trials. I think it's a worldwide problem, but uh, but you're, you're on the front line here. So talk to me a little bit about the difficulties that you've seen. Sure, well, so one, one of the groups I've worked with, we have a cohort of people in the community in North Philadelphia that my wonderful colleague, uh, Dr. Susan Fisher studied to see why um, more people weren't interested in clinical trials. 
And this is predominantly a, an impoverished um, cohort of um, black and sometimes Hispanic individuals. And um, the black uh, individuals often said that they were frightened of being experimented on. They don't trust the doctors. The doctors don't seem to relate to them. Um, they have more trust when people look like them, can talk like them, they don't feel judged. Um, and I found that in my own research that um, uh, my research group is pretty diverse. Uh, the other physician um, is my age, but she's a wonderful um, black psychiatrist and uh, pediatrician, um, Dr. Walters. And a lot of our potential um, patients uh, feel much more comfortable with her. She can also speak Spanish, which I cannot. And I think um, there are a lot of people in our community who just, they feel more comfortable in their native language and can express themselves better and they feel more comfortable in the informed consent process. I think also um, having the ability to speak to somebody who is from your community who's gone through it um, and can tell them about what the experience of being um, a subject in a trial is like has been really important. So we uh, did make um, plans for uh, if someone who was considering participating in our trial wanted to contact a former subject and just talk about what it's like. Um, not, I was surprised that not very many people took us up on that, but I think that made them feel a little bit easier about it. Uh, the cocaine um, problem is mostly a problem for Black Americans. And so as such, most, most of our patients have been um, Black, mostly male. Women have a hard time um, participating in clinical trials because they have a lot of caregiving obligations. And we're not, um, you know, when we're an academic site, we don't, we don't have a setup to help people with caregiving. Um, so. so I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. um, what I'm hearing is, is very interesting. Number one, um, similar issues regarding the recruitment of minorities into clinical trials as, as we've discussed um, regarding uh, vaccine hesitancy in the, in the era of, of COVID, um, not, not being able to trust caregivers uh, that, that don't speak like us or don't look like us, which also ties into another issue that's very prominent these days. And it has to do with the composition of medical students and trainees, soon to be doctors, um, we hear um, repeatedly from patients that they want their doctors to, to, to be more like them, to speak like them, to um, have the same skin tone, to um, come from areas that they come from and so that they can understand them. And we've seen a change in the recruiting efforts of medical schools um, over the years um, to improve the, the demographic mix. So, um, it leads us into the the main issue, I think the overall issue of, of mental health stigma. 
And from your experience, what do you see as, as some of the causes of stigma? Uh, not only uh, uh, being in the profession um, over the years, but also um, its, its impact on patients' access to treatment, both medical and psychiatric. Sure. Well, interrupt me when you need to, but <laughs> something, you know, particularly as somebody who's been trained as an internist first and is was clearly part of the, the medical system, um, psychiatry and mental health is carved out of the med um, medical system and is not integrated. The payment isn't integrated. Um, and it leads to a lot of gaps in care, um, particularly for people who have combined um, medical and psychiatric illness. And then further than that, addiction is even more remote from conventional medical care. Um, and we can just look at uh, how methadone treatment is or organized in the United States and these kind of secret um, places where no one else goes and people pick up packets. Um, so I think that is a big problem. I think the way, um, you know, some of society looks at mental health care. Um, there was just an, uh, an editorial in the New York Times about stigma for doctors obtaining mental health care, even though doctors are under a huge amount of stress right now. Um, but they're afraid to lose their licenses and they'd rather go without treatment or get secret treatment than, you know, use, um, use their insurance. There, you know, um, on that note, um, we're coming up on the two year anniversary of the unfortunate and tragic suicide death of Dr. Lorna Breen. She was a uh, emergency room psychiatrist in New York City, you know, working at a frenetic pace um, at the height of the COVID pandemic there and um, and ended up taking her her own life as a result of, of the stress and, and 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 challenges there. And she wasn't the only physician, um, unfortunately, um, um, uh, you know, to complete suicide. I bring this up because there was legislation just passed, uh, actually March 18th, uh, symbolically, which was match day in the United States for graduating seniors this past March. And the legislation that the, uh, President Biden signed was uh, named after her, the Lorna Breen uh, Act. Uh, there's a more complete name to it, but it does provide for uh, mental health resources for clinicians, not only physicians, but uh, all anyone remotely associated with the um, caregiving field. Um, and it provides resources for um, uh, their treatment and mental illness awareness, uh, grants, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're finally recognizing the issues and the problems surrounding um, burnout and and the toll that the pandemic and just practice in general has taken on physicians and and the number one reason as you mentioned that physicians are reluctant to seek help does relate uh, in large part to a fear of losing their license because these questions are asked on licensing applications but I, I do digress a little bit but I think it's it, you know it, it, again it ties right into stigma not only in our patients 
but in ourselves, in our ability to practice. And it impedes uh, treatment uh, of professionals who, who, who we know um, suffer burnout at least twice the rate of the general population. And in fact, approximately one physician per day um, completes suicide. So we, we need to put a, a desperate end to this problem and this act hopefully will go uh, a long measure toward doing that. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. So let me shift uh, into a, a slightly different but also related question, Mary, if I may, about um, diversity and inclusion in clinical trials. Um, Certainly. What's your opinion on that as to why it's so important? As I mentioned, it's important that we, we kind of match uh, the disease or the disorder under investigation to patients who actually have it, but I'm sure there's other reasons uh, why it's important to ha have a, a very robust patient population when uh, studying or investigating clinical disorders, especially, especially substance use disorders. Well, you're right. So first of all, we were talking about um, having confidence in new medications and results. And I think um, people have more confidence when the participants um, are like them, that they can relate to them. Um, you know, they have the same, again, life experiences. And, you know, there are unique um, groups of people. We've seen this um, uh, when drugs were primarily tested on men, that women had adverse um, effects that weren't picked up in the male studies. So um, when you have a more diverse population and you're, you know, you're doing a lot of safety screening, you can pick up um, both, you know, beneficial effects for certain populations as well as, you know, unique adverse effects. Um, so that, that makes it important. Especially I would think in our field too, of psychiatry, where, uh, an emerging field is this, you know, um, the, uh, psychogenomic aspects of, of medications and, and the different ways that psychiatric drugs are metabolized, um, by people of different cultures, different, um, races um the different ethnicities and so forth that it's very Im Im important to include that wide swath of of individuals in our clinical trials um as you point out so that we could better understand the safety profile of the medications you know that we're studying uh, i have a couple more questions that i thought i, I i'd run past you uh since this is for me you know a, a really um a golden opportunity to, to pick your brain a little bit. And being that you're, um, uh, I would say a lifelong researcher, um, uh, certainly by profession and, and interest, um, and you work in an academic medical center. So, so Mary, um, what do you see as the future for uh, clinician investigators? Um, specifically, what is the pipeline like for, um, physicians who want to go into research, uh, especially in your field in substance use disorders, you know, are we, are we, um, are we seeing a potential shortage of individuals to, 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 to fill that role? 
Yeah, Art, that is a great question and one that the NIH is looking at constantly, but we are, we are seeing a shortage. Um, medical school is expensive. Then on top of that, um, you know, there's four years of psychiatry residency. And during that time, people are supposed to have their families and um, to pick up those research skills on the way um, requires more time um, and ex extra training. And that's time that, um, you know, people with a lot of loans um, can't be working on paying them back. And although there are some mechanisms in place to kind of soften the blow, um, uh, you know, most people can't afford to do that. So our pipeline is uh, not robust. And, um, you know, unfortunately, right now, the huge pharmaceutical companies are not investing a lot into psychiatric drugs either. There's been some investment into drugs for opiate use disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's been spurred on by HEAL um, through the NIH. But um, despite the fact that depression is the number two cause of disability um, in the world, um, we don't have, you know, the clinical research pipeline to help with addiction or, you know, with our major mental disorders. That's, um, I'm sorry to hear, and it, it sounds like things haven't changed a whole lot, actually, in 40 years, maybe they're even worse. But just anecdotally, uh, I should tell you that when I was applying to medical school at Temple, I was also applying at the same time to their pharmacology uh, program, thinking I might do a, a dual MD, PhD degree. And I actually mm -hmm. heard from the medical school first, and I was accepted. And then it came time to, to my, have my interview in the pharmacology department. And their initial take was, well, are, you're trying to get into medical school through the back door, aren't you? You're, you, you're, you're going to enroll in a PhD program and try and transfer into the medical school. And I said, no, actually, I've already been accepted to med school. I'm very interested in pharmacology and I, you know, a dual degree program. So the final answer was, well, we will consider your application in two years. First complete the basic, you know, first two years of medical school. And then, you know, at the time that you transition into your clinical rotations, if you're still interested, you know, we'd be glad to have you. So even 40 years ago, they were kind of setting up a scenario where, as you point out, it is so difficult to do both. Um, but as we both know, but both clinical and research, but as we know, the, the consummate, you know, academician actually has a tripartite mission, not only clinician seeing patients and, and, and researcher, but teaching, teaching medical students. And I know, Mary, that you're a great role model for the students at Temple and elsewhere. Let me, um, I have another question here. Um, that I alluded to in the beginning about the serious underfunding of, of research related to mental health and substance use disorders. Um, what do you think the future is going to look like? Um, because we keep talking about uh, the importance of mental health and mental well-being, 
And, and just when we think that people understand it and are passing significant legislation, we seem to take a step backward. My One of my fa favorite Bruce Springsteen songs contains the line, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Um, of course, he was talking about a relationship there, not about uh, clinical research, but I think it's apropos here. So what are your thoughts about the future of funding of, of research re related to mental health and substance use disorders? Well, I wish I had that crystal ball. Um, you know, funding does respond to pressure. So there is a lot of funding right now for opiate use disorder because of the um, escalating um, risk of drug overdose death. And that is from the fentanyl type drugs that have been put into heroin and other opiates. But now those fentanyl drugs have gone outside of heroin and are part of cocaine and methamphetamine. And they, they're killing um, black Americans who, you know, have cocaine problems and you know, a whole mix of people who use methamphetamine. The funding has not followed. That escalation has been over the past four years. And mm. while the overdose death rate has sort of um, leveled off for white Americans, it's still escalating for black Americans and the funding hasn't followed yet, um, which is unfortunate since I'm working on a cocaine drug, but- um, Well, we talk so about- no, I'm sorry. Yeah, we talk we talk about disparities in healthcare um, so much today. This is this is enlightening. This is a different type of disparity that you're bringing up. So I'm sorry I interrupted. Yeah. You can continue. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 So so I did you know look at a little bit of the funding, um, and so I think Dr. Gordon, the current director of the NIMH, has tried to. Uh, put the level of clinical trial funding at the the overall level of the NIH. But um, I think given that these disorders are disorders of young people and they're only becoming more worse, um, you know, we, we ought to have a, a cancer type initiative for depression and psychotic disorders, major mental illness. Um, so, I, but I don't know if that is politically feasible. Well, if I'm not mistaken, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So I think we're, we're making progress slowly but surely, and maybe it will rise to the level of some other, some of these other um, major and serious, uh, uh, you know, diseases such as cancer and cardiovascular disease. So, I think on that note, Mary, we should probably stop. And I want to thank you immensely for, for joining me um, on this episode of MD Talk. I want to thank our audience for, for tuning in. And I want to remind them that they can catch us on future episodes on all the major podcasts. We have a YouTube channel as well. Um, you can follow us uh, on, on LinkedIn and so forth. We're we're wired, we're connected, we are part of the digital age. And on that note, I'll thank you again, Dr. Mary Morrison, Professor of Psychiatry, Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia. And for all of our listeners and viewers, 
Uh, let me thank you again for tuning in and we will hopefully see you again next time. Goodbye. Thank you, Dr. Lazarus. I think it's been a terrific conversation. Give it a thumbs up.